0: Hey there, Brandon here. We've got an exciting interview for you coming up. But before we get to that interview, I want to read this quick disclaimer. This podcast and the information discussed are intended for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are ours alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security nor a recommendation for any investment, product, or service. Hey, do your own research. Don't trust us. All right, with that, on with the show. All right, joining me today is... Jammin Bell. He's a partner at Altimeter Capital and the author of the Clouded Judgment Newsletter. <laughs> Newsletter. So Jammin, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to talk more. All right. So before we get on with this interview, we're actually going to give everyone some homework. You and I were actually uh, lucky enough to be on the Cloudcast, and we did a whole episode about your background and a lot about, you know, why metrics are matter and why things are important. So if you haven't heard that, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. You should go back, listen to that because it's sort of like, uh, you know, we're building on previous knowledge here. If you're, you're going to want to know about all of uh, the metrics, because as we go through, it'll be a little bit easier to follow along. So if you haven't heard that, go check it out. But Having said that, uh, Jammin, for everyone else that's maybe new, give us a quick overview of who you are and what you do.
1: Uh, yeah, my name's Jamin. I'm over at Altimeter Capital. We're a lifecycle a life investment firm that invests in companies from their kind of early, early growth phases all the way through pre-IPO and, and beyond into the public markets. Me in particular, I spend most of my time partnering with what I would call early growth software companies. So generally that means series B uh, plus or minus, usually companies with in more of the kind of cloud infrastructure, data infrastructure world. Um, But it is kind of broader than that. I've been here for about two and a half years now. Prior to that, uh, prior to Altimeter, I was at Redpoint Ventures for about five years doing very similar things to, to what I'm doing now. So I've kind of been in the investment world for the vast majority of my Professional career, yeah, um, and, and enjoy it quite a bit. It's, it's an honor getting to work with a lot of the exciting companies in uh, in the world right now.
0: Now, while being a venture capitalist is, is of course, a prestigious job, what's really more important here is you are an excellent news. Letter author, right? You are the author, yeah. the creator, the founder, uh, the man behind uh, Clouded Judgment, which is if you're in the, the cloud world and you want to follow the finance side, of it, I think it's a must read. I think it's been passed around the software defined talk community and I don't know, just around tech uh, in general. So why don't you tell us a little bit about if you haven't come across Clouded Judgment, this is your time to go. Uh, that's your second homework assignment. You need to immediately go subscribe. But for those that haven't, give us an overview of what that newsletter covers and maybe, you know, uh, where it came from. Yeah,
1: I mean, the the quick description is it is a weekly blog that kind of gets into and discusses some of the recent trends in software uh, with a bunch of data-driven charts and uh, tables uh, to go along with it. The, the idea really came about at the onset of COVID where I kind of knew I wanted to start writing more. I, I knew I wanted to get into blogging more, but just didn't really know what's the right topic. What do people care about? You know, what, you know, what ultimately is, is content that people would like to consume on a regular basis? The main idea was we work with these companies in their early growth phases that, you know, ultimately at some point in their evolution, start thinking about going public. And usually when that point hits, you're talking to bankers, they're telling you, hey, here's what it takes to go public. Here's what public markets care about. Here's what public company metrics look like and what you should be aspiring to. And there's this switch that flips on. Okay, now I start I need to start thinking about being a public company uh, and how I should benchmark myself and build towards that. The whole, that whole process just felt a little bit just broken to me of, wow, like wouldn't it be better if entrepreneurs early earlier in their evolution could just kind of get a drip feed of content around public market metrics, valuation multiples, et cetera, so that when it did come time to ultimately go public themselves, it wasn't as much of this, hey, flip the switch moment, but more of a, I've been following the markets for years now. I know what's going on. I know the lingo. I know what public markets care about, what moves public markets and, and how ultimately I should build a business to look like that one day. That was kind of the impetus for it. And it started really just with charts and tables over time. I started writing a little bit more, right. It probably has a little bit more of like a macro bent to it. Uh, Over the last, you know, 12, 18 months is is kind of a lot of macro conditions have have been a big factor in software valuations today. Uh, but yeah, that, that's the that, that's a super high level is just giving founders content to prepare for being public one day.
0: And I think for everyone listening to this, maybe you're not uh, finance first thinking, right? man I know we have a lot of very technical audience building stuff, which is great. But I think the newsletter is a great window into kind of like how um, anyone that's either going to invest in your your company or finance or investment banking. So I think it's really good from the perspective, like kind of understanding that like what are, you know, what's that lingo? Just like there's a lingo of like how to build distributed technologies. There's a lingo of how finance talks. And I know um, you've got a background in investment banking, right? And I think you even yeah. said that some of these ideas came from back when you were an investment banker or analyst, right? You actually would send this off to like, you know, your, your colleagues and right. Yeah. It's the way yeah, that yeah. they kind of think about it. So, so I think of it that way. It's really like a scorecard of how investment Investors are thinking about the market, and we'll talk a little bit more throughout uh, this entire episode why that's important. But really, if we think about it, how investors think is how the CEO is going to make decisions, and the CEO making decision is how it's going to affect all of us, whether that's funding our new projects or uh, not investing in our new projects or whatever we want to think of it. So, yeah. so think about um, that. And again, must must subscribe if you haven't already done it, go do it now. The newsletter, uh, you in fact, you corrected me beforehand, it covers even more companies than I thought. It covers 83 companies, and it's really focused in on SaaS and cloud. But why don't you kind of give us your background? Like, how did you come up with these 83 companies to cover? Like, kind of what's your criteria to move someone in or out of this, uh, yeah. I guess, co- cohort of analysis?
1: Yeah. You know, you usually companies, it's actually smaller than it, than it was usually the kind of the net inflows and outflows to the, to the list would even out as companies get acquired and then companies go public and, you know, and more are added. Uh, it feels like over the last 12, 18 months as you know, we've, we've had no new inflows with, without any, you know, software IPOs and, and, you know, a number of outflows is a number of companies have, have been acquired, uh, um, or, or taken private by, by private equity firms, uh, but I mean, r- really, there's not there's not a whole lot of, of of magic to like you know who I include. Generally, I I try to include you know somewhat larger businesses, so you know not tons of the micro cap stuff. Uh, you know, hundred million, hundred fifty million plus in in annual revenue. Uh, it's by no means kind of a, a perfect or or exhaustive list, but I thought, hey, what what's a big enough a, a big enough number where you know an aggregate or a median metric sounds statistically significant giving the giving the sample size but but really it's just it's broadly cloud software public companies
0: yeah and i think just to throw out a few names i think the audience will know certainly datadog former sponsor you know that's a really popular one workday of course is really well known um and there's a bunch in there. i kind of think of it as sort of like you know anyone doing something kind of interesting in enterprise I think as far as i know it's it's everything it's enterprise there's no uh there's no Twitter. I guess that's not private exactly. There's yeah, no Snapchat yeah. or anything like that. So you have yeah. to go somewhere else. It's uh, it's the important companies, as we like to say. Exactly. Uh, exactly. In here on Software Divine Talk. So, okay. So um, the real reasons, and I thought it was real timely to have you on here, is you do uh, every quarter, I think. I don't know if you've done it every time, but you kind of do this, like, if you will, uh, a, a look back at Q4 in this case. So yep. and I thought it'd be good to kind of, so much has happened in the investment world over the last quarter. I feel like we've had six years in this one quarter, and I thought it'd be good to have you on and like, let's just talk about uh, what we're seeing. So what, maybe we'll start with kind of the macro environment. And yeah. maybe, you know, let's start with the simplest thing, like, you know, earnings, like how much, com- how much money are people making? So kind of through your analysis, um, what's changed? How has earnings performance versus estimates changed over, say, the last year, the last quarter?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, the post being referenced is, you know, every quarter, public companies report their financials for the quarter, right? Everything kind of from revenue down to net income, to the cash flow statement, to the balance sheet—you know, all the there's there's a reporting requirement for public companies that gives you know public investors or anyone following great insights into to how these businesses are performing. at, you know at a somewhat granular level, right? Not not super granular, but you know granular enough. Uh, and so every quarter, I'll aggregate all the performance. Um, did companies beat estimates, miss estimates? What are free cash flow margins or other SaaS metrics? Uh, just to kind of give a broader sense for, Hey, how are these businesses performing? I think the main thing people think about when they look at quarterly reports are, you know, for software companies, at least, right. It's, it's two metrics. It's how did the company perform in that quarter relative to consensus estimates and what did they guide to guiding to being, you know, companies will give a preliminary estimate on what they expect to do in the next quarter coming up. Uh, these consensus estimates are usually uh, an aggregated set of sell-side analysts, right? So think kind of Morgan Stack, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, right? All the investment banks have sell-side research groups that cover each one of these companies and build their own forward model and projections. The median, uh, you know, estimate or, or forward projection across the aggregation of these re- sell-side research reports you know, end up creating what we call consensus estimates. And so when we look at software companies, right, who just reported Q4, you know, a few months ago or a month ago, we'll we'll look at uh, how, you know, how much revenue did they do in the quarter versus what the consensus estimate was Uh, and how much, yeah, how much did it beat or miss that number? We'll look similarly at their guidance, right? We just reported Q4, companies will guide for Q1 and we'll say how does the guide compare for consensus estimates for Q1? Usually, software companies have a beat and raise model where you want to beat the consensus estimates for the quarter and then raise guidance for the following quarter right above consensus. Typically, what that ends up looking like is, you know, on average, software companies will beat the current quarter consensus estimate by about 4% and, guide the next quarter about 2% above consensus. And you kind of have this beating and raising dynamic that happens quarter after quarter. I think what we've seen recently is a, is a big impact <clears throat> to the number of companies who are beating consensus estimates and who are raising the next quarter. Typically in software, uh, you're not missing the current quarter's estimates because you have that cushion built in what we've seen over the last few quarters right is you know historically you know 9678 you know nearly 100% of company of software companies will beat current consistent consensus estimates by about 4%. What we've seen over the last few quarters is that's fallen now. Now it's about 90% of companies are beating consensus estimates and the average beat is about 2% right? And so we've seen the size of the beat fall dramatically, as well as the number of companies who are beating consensus estimates. Then I think we pair that to guidance, right? Usually call it 90% of companies are guiding one quarter forward above consensus estimates uh, at a a rate of about, again, 2% 2 above uh, next quarter's consensus. The last two quarters, we've actually seen less than half of the software universe has beaten consensus estimates. And the average, I guess the median guide this last quarter was actually 1% below consensus. So we've really seen a dramatic shift in terms of companies' performance and ability to kind of guide in the future, right? Um, Because when we think about this, right, you look at what happened in Q3. In Q3, we saw a bunch of weak guides for Q4, so you th- you might think okay the bar for Q4 was low companies should beat higher but what ended up happening was the bar for Q4 was low and then the margin of beat was lower than it was historically and that was followed up with weak guides for Q1 and we'll see how these companies perform in Q1 but I'd say broadly speaking companies are you know are, are adding. Uh, a smaller amount of new bookings on a quarterly basis. I'll give one more data point and then I'll stop rambling. Uh, but but another, another metric I'll look at is the amount of net new ARR that companies add in a quarter. You can kind of think of this as new bookings. Um, you know, net new ARR will encompass uh, new logo, ACV, as well as expansion from existing customers and churn and contraction for customers who left or are spending less. When we look at the amount of net new ARR that software companies, again, kind of the broad, broad average, added in Q4 2022 versus Q4 2021, the median software company actually added 20% less net new ARR in Q4 2022 than they did in Q4 2021. and that, That's pretty significant because uh, yeah. that net new ARR, new bookings is a great leading indicator of, of what's to
0: come. So I think, man, you said a lot there. So some some great things to d- dig in on. So let's go back a little bit and first talk about, you know, you kind of talked about like, well, most of the time companies yeah. come in and they beat the consensus estimate by 4%. That's kind of their goal. So there's always like a weird little game that goes on in earnings, right? They're sort of like what the consensus estimate is. And then the company um, also if you will, trying to keep that number low, just like all of us, right? We're trying to, uh, you know, uh, uh, if you will, uh, over deliver on what we want. So maybe we should talk a little bit about like why that is, It's like, and maybe you can touch on this. Like a lot of these companies, uh, especially in SaaS, like they'll kind of know beforehand, especially as the quarter starts, like, how much rep they'll have a really good sense of how much revenue that's coming in because of contracts that mm-hmm. have already been signed that are things of if you will it's not like you have to go out and sell everything on day one to recognize it so that i think maybe maybe you want to talk a little bit about that like how does the company kind of know and come up with its own estimate and then maybe yeah. contrast that with then if you're an investment banker at morgan stanley or somewhere else how are they then coming up with the model kind of like if you will yeah. demystify that for us
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so from the company standpoint, the nice thing about software is that it's pretty predictable. Right. You have contracts that are, you know, annual or multi-year um, that renew at a point in time. And you generally have a good sense for what percentage of my customers renew. Of those that renew, how much do they expand? You know, you typically these companies will have, you know, on the new logo bookings, right? They'll have well understood sales cycles where you know, okay. In this quarter, what will my bookings be from renewal and what will my bookings be from new customers? And you generally have a good sense of of how that works because those metrics are consistent across a period of time, right? And, And on the new bookings, new logo side, usually you'll look at your pipeline and you'll say, hey, generally I expect X percent of my pipeline to convert in a given quarter. You might hear a metric about pipeline coverage. Companies generally want to have about 3x pipeline to what they want to book in the court, right? All these metrics are pretty well understood. What's happening now, and this is exaggerated for businesses that have consumption models, is that it's getting really hard to forecast because the metrics that historically drove your forecast, your renewal rates, your expansion rates, your pipeline coverage and conversion, your sales cycles, those are all changing in real time and very rapidly. And so you'll have companies give guidance that is based on all of their own internal kind of super granular metrics that they don't you know, release publicly. And they'll bake in some margin of safety because, again, the model and software is that you're going to beat and raise. No one wants to put out a number that they're going to miss. So you put out a number that you're going to beat. And then, you know, there'll be some margin of safety. The reality is, as sell-side analysts, there's only so much data, right, that they get. And so they'll rely on company guidance. They'll rely on their own bottoms-up forecasts that, you know, factor in things like how many sales reps you have and what you expect their quotas to be and what you expect to cover. You know, but a lot of it is a little bit of um, you can't know for certain, Uh and there isn't just the granular level, granular level of detail that the sales side analyst will get versus what the company has, and so it, it's a little bit of. I mean, I, I imagine a great guest would be someone who you know was at a sales side research firm who who could kind of talk a lot about it. Uh, but there's there's everyone kind of has their own method. It's a little bit. Um, it, it can be art versus science. Uh, as, as again, like as a public company, you just you can't disclose everything. You know, every, you're going to disclose what you will to sell side in public markets, but it, it's not everything. It's not exactly how many reps you have and what their quota is and how many reps are hitting quota. the typical data right. that I'll ask for when evaluating a private business.
0: Now, I think, you know, you mentioned sell side a couple of times just to make sure everyone knows that that's just really the big investment banks, right? The idea that they're selling ideas. Yeah, so they're exactly. the ones like Goldman, uh, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, a bunch of others. So they're going to do all this research and then they have a bunch of people figure out their own models and they'll plug it in. And like you said, there's a little bit of a game here, right? The, the, the companies will come out and they'll give you a number, but they'll have some safety in it. And the analysts probably is, like, Oh, they got some safety in it. So they'll ratchet it up and down. But I think all of that is that um, is it's important to maybe understand where it comes from. But I think, and I, I will definitely make sure I'll make some of these charts, the chapter art as we go is that all I think that really matters is the trends, right? The fact that like mm-hmm. they didn't beat as much and the fact that as mm-hmm. going forward, they're getting lower Doesn't, and that's really what matters when you look at the lines. And that I think is ultimately where we are today. Like we're seeing a lot of, and so we think about as a community of people working technology, we've seen all of this, like a lot of layoffs, a lot of cutbacks and things like that. This is, this is kind of where it all started, right? This is what the information the CEOs are seeing. They're seeing less earnings. They're going to get pressure from investors. Investors are going to be asking what they're going to do. And this is what turns out to be the cutbacks and the changes we see uh, in the corporation. So, as we kind of think about this, you know, going forward, I guess, you know, um, you know, what are your thoughts? I know one of the things you put in here was, you know, kind of like how long will the bad news last? Right. And I think you referenced uh, a nice, uh, if you will, um, survey here around it budgets. So maybe talk a little bit about what that showed in the past and what it's uh, showing going forward.
1: Yeah. You know, I'd say, I'd say that is the, if I had a magic eight ball that I could shake, that would tell me the answer for, you know, kind of when things start to turn. you could make a lot of money with that answer. <laughs> uh, I'd say the hard part is, is you talk to a lot of CFOs of, um, of later stage private companies, and they'll tell you it's, it's really hard to have visibility on when things get better, right? You always want to think, okay, after this quarter, we'll see the light at the tunnel. But I don't think many folks can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so it's a little bit of, uh, there's a lot of kind of just uneasiness on when we get there, right? And part of that has to do with, just how software is bought and sold, right? If you think about a classic software product that sells seat-based licenses, you know you're going to only renew that, you know, probably at most once a year. And if you sign multi-year contracts, you're only renewing that every two or three years, and that is typically the point in time in when you'll renegotiate lower or you'll you'll renew, but instead of renewing for 100 seats like you had last time, you'll renew for 80 seats, and you kind of you see this impact in kind of piecemeal ways spread out over months and years, just given how software is bought and sold, right? Obviously the caveat there is consumption models are different, but classic seat-based software, it takes time. And you see companies doing really creative things, right? You'll, you'll see a company that typically sells a one-year deal, maybe again, use the hypothetical for a hundred seats. And, you know, in reality, a customer wants to turn entirely, but the vendor says, hey, don't churn, don't churn, you know, sign a three year renewal with us in the first year. We'll give it to you 90 percent off. And then in year two, you'll pay us full price. And then in year three, it'll be, you know, 20 percent higher. But really creative things just to keep the companies from churning entirely. Uh, and so when, when things will get better, you know, it's it's tough to say. I'd say this, that, that survey you referenced that Morgan Stanley put out, you know, typically if you look back, you um, And I think I'm going to quote this right. Uh, But, you know, IT budgets will grow about 4% a year. Um, Right now, the expectation is for, call it like one and a half to 2% growth. I think that's what it said, Uh, which is obviously lower. But look, it's not negative. And I'd say over the last few surveys, kind of the expectations are going like this, 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 right? It was, hey, we expect to grow 3%. And then it was, we expect to grow 2.5%. And then it was 2%. And I'd say where we are now is... The expectations aren't getting worse. I think we kind of, we leveled off a bit, uh, which is, again, we're still below where we typically see IT budgets growing on an annual basis, but at least the expectation isn't getting worse and worse and worse every quarter. It's, it's kind of flattening out. So like, could we be at, at, at kind of like a, a bottom in period in terms of budget growth expectations, maybe, uh, But it's hard to say. I think that the broad takeaway from this Morgan Stanley report was they expected kind of this churning, squeezing out of costs, right, kind of headwinds to software to last through or I think either through or to Q4 of this year, which is a little bit later than they had previously anticipated, Um, which is, again, I think everyone kind of keeps pushing out the time period for when they think things will get better. And it's always two quarters in the future. So, (laughs) you know, time will tell. On on when yeah, and when I think to you- be fair
0: too, it's it is just a survey, but it, it's good, but in the sense of like I don't know, the question you always ask is like, well, does did, did the CIOs even know, right? I mean, I think they're sort of like yeah. when you ask, you know, just like asking you or me or anybody this question is like, well, do you think your budget's going to go up or down? At this point, you'd probably say, well, it's yeah. probably going down. You don't really, you don't, you don't know, right? I guess you never really yeah. know what's going on. You just have your your own gut uh, feel. Now, one of the things yeah. that you you had another chart on uh, from another thing that you you sent me was sort of like, well. You know, we've been in this idea that, like, for a long time, it's like spend to grow, right? Grow your SaaS company, grow your company. You know, um, hire more sales people, do more marketing, right? You know, and there was venture capital was, if you will, a little maybe a little bit easier to come by than it is recently. So you have this kind of uh, this thought about a renewed focus on efficiency. So maybe talk talk about like what does that mean and how is that showing up in the data?
1: Yeah, and, and really quick too, just. One last point on on what we were just describing on, just like how hard it is and people don't know. I think look at a business like Snowflake, right? Which has a super experienced management team and CFO. They've been around the block. They've lived through many cycles. They've been execs through many cycles. Coming out of Q3, I think they guided, you know, they gave a preliminary guide that they were going to grow 47% in 2023, right? One quarter later, they come out in their earnings report and they say, you know, we're going to grow 40% this year, right? That's in three months time, that's a pretty drastic shift in what they expected the business to do in 2023, right? And so- Yeah, it's worth noting,
0: but maybe the thing you should touch on here is the, the licensing models there. Like I think Snowflake yeah. is one of the better known consumption models versus kind yeah. of the, let's say the seat-based model. So why don't you tell us, why don't you define those two for everyone?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, You know, consumption models basically say you are going to pay for what you use. Uh, you know, seat based models is, you know, I think the easiest example is a a project management tool. You know, I add another person to the team that's using that tool and I'm going to pay an additional 10 bucks a user a month. Right. So it's paying per seats versus paying for some unit of consumption. And that unit of consumption could be something like data stored. Um, or queries run, or data used, or compute cycles used, right? Some unit of measurement that can go up or down really fast. For Snowflake and a lot of these consumption models, you get a lot more volatility day to day because it's really easy to turn things off or ramp things up. And so for many of these consumption models, I think what we heard in Q4 earnings was really, hey, it is just really hard to forecast because these daily, weekly, quarterly trends, they can just move up and down. And it's not like a seat-based model where you say, hey, we know our renewal rates are going to be 90% and we know our close rate is going to be 60% and we know our sales cycle is 63 days, right? Where you can really forecast at a much more granular level and these inputs are much more known and understood where it's, hey, maybe... A company just decides to shut you off one day if if you're a consumption model. Consumption goes to zero. The next day you recognize zero revenue. And so you get a lot more volatility in these consumption models, which make it even harder to to kind of forecast or plan in volatile moments like we're in right now. Uh, So that's kind of what I mean by the. You know, kind of consumption seat based, uh, yeah. And I
0: think for not, everyone, you know, yeah. starting companies and all the product people and everyone doing pricing, it's like you know, talk about important decisions for your company, right? Are you going to be you know, seat based, are you going to be consumption based? Um, you know, th- that's like a topic of a whole nother podcast and probably 7,000 yeah. different books, like you know, about coming yeah. up with that. But it is, it's one of those things, uh, you know, and most. Moments like this, right, when people can just uh, reduce costs by not using it is probably not so good. But there's a lot of upside, too, too, right, when you have a tool that people depend on. And it kind of, like, uh, makes its way around the corporation real fast. It's, like, suddenly you see this, you know, exponential growth, which can be super yeah. exciting, uh, for, yeah. for your product. So lots of, uh, things to worry about that. So you, so you mentioned Snowflake and you said, mentioned like, yeah, look, look here's a company with all these uh, skilled managers and, you know, they've, uh, sort of guided down. And I think, you know, they're probably a good example of like, so, uh, you know, renewing their focus on, on efficiency. So, so what are you seeing in the data? What is, what does that actually mean?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. Um, and when I look at, you know, again, one of these metrics that I'll track <clears throat> is, Just kind of aggregate median numbers across the universe of of this, you know, kind of 80, 90 software companies uh, that I cover. Right. I think what's really interesting is if you go back to 2020, what we saw was the median free cash flow margin jump from kind of call it low single digits to 10, 11 percent. So companies drastically increased on average, right, their free cash flow margin. Now, why did that happen? I think we can all look back now and say, okay, that happened because there was this massive pull forward in demand, right? I think the perfect example to use is a company like Zoom. All of a sudden, everyone needed that product. Everyone was signing up and buying that product. At the same time, companies weren't scaling their OPEX to uh, kind of close and capture that demand. It just happened. It fell into their lap. You know, revenue was started growing a lot faster than OPEX. What ended up happening then in 2021 was, you know, was two things. One, the market started rewarding growth, right, over efficiency. And if you could, if you look back to, you know, I have these scatter plots. Um, I want to say like around September, um, you know, I'll just graph the, you know, NTM revenue multiple versus NTM growth rate. And the correlation between those two, so just looking at how your growth impacts your valuation multiple, it was about, you know, the R-squared was about 0.7, so fairly high for a a broad set of companies, right? Today, that number is more like 0.4. And so the the market has shifted. But what happened in 2021 is the market said, hey, we don't really care about free cash flow margins, like just grow, 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 grow. Uh, And so two things happened. One, companies did that. Uh, They hired a lot. So they started scaling OPEX so that they could grow really quickly. At the same time, as we kind of got through the end of 2021 and into 2022, that demand pull forward that we saw started to kind of reverse course. And so now all of a sudden you had companies who were ramping OpEx really quickly because A, the market said, we're going to reward growth. And so what do you do? You hire more reps, you hire more marketers, you hire more engineers to build product. Uh, And there was also this element of, hey, we probably expected that pull forward to you know, to not be quite as transitory as it was. Uh, what happened? The pull forward started to slow. And so a, a weakening in demand was met by companies who were ramping off X at the same time. And we saw margins pinch. And so that median free cash flow margin, which peaked at kind of call it 10, 11%, dropped down to zero and even went negative over the next few quarters. I want to say in, you know, kind of early, maybe Q1 or Q2 2022, it, it, it actually dipped negative. What we've now seen since then, right over Q3 and Q4 2022, is this renewed focus on efficiency. We've seen, you know, a wide swath of layoffs, uh, of hiring freezes. And so OPEX now has started to slow. Um, And while revenue isn't growing as quickly as it used to, it's still growing. And so we're seeing now revenue start to grow faster than OPEX and in Q4, the median free cash flow margin across the software universe was, I think, was about eight, eight, nine percent, right? And so we're kind of getting back to that COVID high period, but the difference being, free cash flow margins peaked kind of at the onset of COVID because revenue started growing super fast, right? Free cash flow margins are peaking now because companies are really taking a hard look at the expense lines, at the opex. And optimizing and managing managing those in order to drive free cash flow margin. And so we've really seen a shift in one how companies are operating, and two, like how the market is valuing uh, software, these software companies, um, right? Rewarding efficiency over just purely growth.
0: Yeah, and this uh, chart, that'll be some of the chapter art right here. I think it just, I mean, there's a lot of stuff on it, but it's really these three lines tell the whole story. You just kind of see this nice ramp up of free cash flow and then a sudden decline, almost it falls off this cliff. And then now you start to see it going up again. So it's kind of back to like, you know, wh- like, why do we care about all this? It's like, well, this is what executives are looking at, right? It's like, well, we, we our free cash flow was going way, way down. So they've, cut back expenses and starting to move up again. And then I think all of us probably prefer to work in environments where that line is going up and to the right. That means there's more money coming yeah. in and there's more yeah. stuff to do. And then, you know, people are just generally in a, a good mood. So, um, so that's really good. That's a really good depiction of it. So, so now uh, the other chart that you have in uh, this newsletter that I like, I don't know what the official name is. I think of it almost like a checkerboard. It's just fantastic. You okay. always do kind of, yeah. um, is it always top 10? I don't want to tell you. It's basically the top performers uh, in your cohort. Right. And kind of build out like, I don't know. It's sort of like, here are the metrics that stood out, the best performers Mm -hmm. of each metric. Uh, And I thought it'd be Mm -hmm. worth to maybe, you know, talk through some of them just to, to see which, um, you know, see kind of just what jumped out, who's doing well. And especially especially like, uh, I don't know, you can start, you can kind of take me wherever you want. I think uh, maybe Datadog was one that I, I, I kind of jumped out at me as at strong growth. Like, how do you interpret it? What are you seeing there?
1: Yeah, I'd I'd say so. The, these top performers, it, it's just kind of some function I run that that weighs. Okay, did you were you beating estimates? Were you missing estimates? Were you raising guidance? Were you missing guidance? You know how fast were you growing? What were your free cash flow margins? Your gross margins? Your payback period? Uh, and so these these top you know and I'll and I'll kind of weight each one of those categories. Uh, it, it's really just kind of formulaic driven. But I think what we what we saw from a lot of these top performers, which I think is is very interesting, is that their growth was almost all in either the top decile or top quartile, as was their free cash flow margin. And I think that's, you know, we can look at all the other metrics, but I think those two metrics in tandem with each other are generally not ones that go together, right? When we think about software companies, usually they follow an arc of, Growth and not profitable in the early days lead to low growth and profitability in the more mature days. What's really interesting is is a lot of the top performers today are able to generate those kind of what I would call more terminal like free cash flow margins of 15, 20, you know, plus percent while still growing quite quickly, right? 30, 40, 50% plus. That to me is pretty interesting because what it's showing is that, hey, if these software companies can still generate high free cash flow margins while being in the phase of high growth, like that's something that could fundamentally shift how we think about the value of these software businesses, where typically, you know, if you think about You know, like the the tried and true way to actual value, actually value a business like, of course, it's not a revenue multiple. It is what is the future value of the cash flows generated by that business discounted back to present day. For these software companies, usually what that flow looks like is negative or zero free cash flows early on within free cash flow in the outer years. So most of the value accumulates in the outer years. If instead these companies today are able to generate free cash flow today while still being in, while still operating in, in a growth mode, that kind of like drastically increases the value of the business. And 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 I would say decreases the variability in the outcome because there's not as much weight in the valuation um, in a future, you know, three, four, five year out period. You know, you get a lot more of the value in year one, two, and three of cash, of, of the cash flows. Uh so I think that to me, like what stood out the most about you know those those few is that look they're growing quickly and they're generating free cash flow and, and that is a uh, a pretty unique combo. I'd say the one thing to call out about Datadog is you know one of the factors that I weigh when kind of calculating the top performers is the change in estimates. And it's funny, I'm actually looking at this chart now and I, I have a have a typo, <laughs> um, but I'll look at. Before the quarter, sell side had a consensus for 2023. After the quarter, how did that change, right? And so generally you would think, okay, hey, if the company performed much better than expected, 2023 estimates are going to go up. And if it performed worse than expected, then 2023 estimates should go down. Uh, I think Datadog was the only business in kind of the, the top performer section where the the change in the 2023 estimates pre and post earnings it actually it actually went down uh, which you know i'd say maybe that is more of a leading indicator for what's to come for that business over the the course of the year maybe they just kind of kind of kitchen sink the guidance and gave you know the worst case outcome because they're saying it's hard to predict you know time time will tell it's, it's a very interesting time right you, you have management teams that have different philosophies on how much cushion they bake into the guide there's not tons of um what's the word i'm looking for you know just consistency and that every management team's different uh so yeah i don't know that 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 was kind of my broad reactions to the one for a dog
0: that um that really jumps out to me is this net retention and so it was the i think it was the highest here was 133 percent of them reading that right and it's sort of uh i don't know just sort of you know, it's like monitoring tools are just so I, I know data dogs more than monitoring. So don't don't email them like Datadog people, but just we'll just call that that broad space. Is this uh, just, yeah. you know, it's just uh, once you get it in there, right, you're talking about we're talking about like usage based, right? Like maybe you will not run your snowflake reports, right? Maybe, maybe you will, but you know what you're going to do, you're going to monitor, <laughs> you're going to monitor your infrastructure. And the fact that they're the highest there, it just shows you kind of how durable that business is like, and I just feel like, once the world has decided on the monitoring tool, like, you know, I've, I've long said on this podcast, you know, Nagios, it's like everyone's always going to replace Nagios and Nagios is stronger than ever. It's used everywhere. You can't get rid of monitoring tools. In the case of Datadog, I think they're they're riding that wave right now there. So so that net retention is just what jumps out to me. It feels like a business that, you know, hey, they may guide up, they may guide down, but man, it's not going anywhere. They, they are going to retain it or someone's going to have to really walk in was something really impressive for them to like rip out their data dog and uh, replace it. So I, you know, that one uh, I always think of that. And then CrowdStrike was the other one that sort of, cause it sort of had, you know, kind of what you want, you were getting at before they had what free uh, cash flow of it was the highest at 37%. And you had them at year over year growth at what? 48%. And it's like, it mm-hmm. seems like the perfect kind of business, right? We're making a lot of money and we're growing fast. So you'd be like, so if you're CrowdStrike, growth. <laughs> you know yeah. so you're crossing you're probably like hey i don't think we're cutting back budgets like we're like we should be yeah. you know I, I mean i i would um so that one kind of jumped out at me as well and then um the other one on here just because it had a lot of green boxes i just don't know as much about i don't even know how to say it it's what is it samser like they just had I'm a sorry. lot of your they had a lot of your uh i think what they had the highest because it's color coded i guess' is what i'm uh, so they were right. on what Five of the metrics uh they were in the one of the top performers so i don't know any thoughts on that what's going on there what should we know about that company feels like i need to go read about that company. i
1: I don't know i don't know that business um that well so i'm probably not the right person to comment but uh yeah i mean they they're growing quickly um you know the, the the payback period is is relatively low estimates are going up um not quite you know uh, profitable on a free cash flow basis yet, uh, but it's—I I, want to say it's the it, today it has like the third highest multiple and in, in third or fourth. It's definitely in the top five. Um, so yeah, there's there's definitely a lot a lot working there. Um,
0: I, I'm not as familiar with it though, so I'm probably not the right. Yeah, person that's to fine. Uh, listen, I'm not I'm not trying to. Uh quiz you on all of this, but I think it, it kind of shows you, and I think this is one of the reasons I love this newsletter is it sort of, if you will, reveals to think uh, companies that I may not know about, right? It's sort of like, where should I go read up on them and who's doing well and why is it doing well and what are some po- possible trends? So that's why I think uh, something like this is what, and this is probably, you're going to hear from like your executives, like, hey, maybe we should be using this because they're going to be hearing about it as well. Now you mentioned multiples and I, th- I think it's worth talking about that. Um, and I feel like that's almost sort of the bread and butter. Like this is sort of the quarterly yes. wrap up, but the multiples, I think are in every single one of your newsletters. It's sort of like yes. the, the yes. scorecard, if you will. So, so as we kind of like, you know, get to the ends here, maybe tell us a little bit about multiples and then maybe tell mm-hmm. us, you know, kind of the key multiples you published. I think they're every week. It's sort of like a nice yeah. way to check in on what's going on in the market. So give us an overview of all that. Yeah. So when I think
1: about multiples, uh, those are really just a valuation framework right? So if I give you a business and I give you its financial profile, you know, what would you value it at? Generally, valuation frameworks are tricky because, you know, not all businesses are created equal. And so it's it's hard to find a one size fits all valuation framework, you know, to ultimately value businesses. And, and so we, we kind of fall back to um, kind of like high level, basics, right, if, if you will, where, you know, generally, look, if you want to actually value a business, the, the tried and true kind of like base level is what is the present value of future cash flows generated, uh, di- you know, discounted back to present day, like that. that is the true way of valuing a business, right? And so in many ways, looking at a free cash flow multiple is, is kind of one iteration of that. I'd say when you look at the software universe, though, and you just want to say, hey, like, what is one metric that I can use to evaluate every business, you know, kind of number one to number 90, you know, not every business generates free cash flow, right? You know, some businesses value is more heavily weighted towards free cash flow generated in the future versus free cash flow today. And so using a kind of a one year forward free cash flow metric doesn't mean much if the free cash flow is negative. uh, But again, you expect it to inflect positive in the future. And so Usually what I do is I use a shorthand valuation framework, which is a revenue multiple, and that says, okay, what is your revenue projected to be, you know, over the next 12 months, I'm going to assign a multiple to that, where if I, you know, multiply your one year forward revenue by said multiple, that gives me an enterprise value of the business. and there are there will be a lot of assumptions that are baked into that revenue multiple. A revenue multiple is by no means a perfect metric. It's it's actually very imperfect, uh, but it is kind of the one way to line up a bunch of companies next to each other and assess their relative value, right? Uh, and I talked a little bit about a correlation earlier, but you know we could take two businesses. You know, Company A growing fifty percent. Company B is growing 50%. You know, they both expect $100 million of revenue over the next 12 months. And you might say, OK, well, you know, if all that matters is growth, they should have the same revenue multiple, right? Obviously, there's more than just growth. And so let's say company A is growing 50%, but has free cash flow margins of 20%. Company B is growing 50%, but has free cash flow margin margins of negative 20%. Right? Those businesses shouldn't have the same revenue multiple. They should be different. Maybe company A trades at eight times forward revenue, company B trades at six times forward revenue. Again, I'm, I'm just kind of make, making up numbers here. Uh, but the, the idea being there are other factors kind of baked into a revenue multiple, but, but any kind of one year forward metric or multiple is, is going to have a lot of imperfect assumptions built into it, um, you know, and sure, look, I could go build a DCF for all 90 businesses to come up with a, you know, a more of an intrinsic value. But the quick and dirty valuation multiple that I usually use is, is a revenue multiple, um, just to kind of assess the universe's relative valuation to one another, who's relatively expensive versus relatively cheap. And how do those relative metrics compare to historical norms?
0: Yeah, I think it's a good overview. And I think, you know, for everyone listening, let let me give you a little uh, secret. Here's what you can do you can just subscribe to the newsletter and uh, let Jam and do all the work. And then you just get it because that's really what you want. It's just like, hey, I'm just looking for a quick scorecard. Like, do things look higher, lower? And then all the other metrics that we went through, right? Like, I can go dig in, especially because you publish a lot of this, this data. It's like, okay you know this has a high uh, revenue multiple maybe i want to go look at it and see okay what does its uh, cash flow look like what does its growth look like what does its earnings look like so it's sort of just all of these things if you will they're sort of like shorthand to like where should you focus your effort and that way there be obviously if you're investing that's you know kind of your day job but probably for everyone listening here it's like hey if i'm going to go work at this company like want to take a look at these metrics? What is it looking like? You may that may inform your decision, right? Or if this is a product that you may decide to use, is it? It's usually better to be using a product that's growing, that's gaining traction. Like I think a lot of this this data is good for things outside of just like buying and selling stocks. Um, mm-hmm. and I think you know the fact that you have kind of provided us all the data and you can just like once a week uh, review the newsletter, that's even better. So keep up the good work on that. Now, uh, before we completely get out of here, is uh, let's talk about your you know your your quote unquote real job uh you know you're out there you're meeting with uh all the startups um everybody that's ever um written the words uh the letters ai has come to you and pitched you an idea this week i'm sure on uh, their variant of chat gpt but in all seriousness like what what are you seeing out there uh as sort of like we kind of go through this explosion of uh artificial intelligence that's happening or machine learning to be more correct
1: yeah I, i mean honestly like not to sound too cliche but like i'm super fired up about about everything we're seeing in artificial intelligence and I think the strides that you know advancements there will, will make just in terms of like how we get work done I think it's a huge potential uh, with the ability to capture tons of value and I'd say one of the areas I'm most excited about And I've used this example before but I just I love it uh, you know for those who are familiar with the mule soft business it's you know, it, it does a lot, but like think about it broadly as an integration business. It helps kind of connect system A with system B with system C and in, in some workflow and it builds the integrations to help data flow from be- between them. When they went public um, in their S1 and an S1 is just a document that companies file with the SEC that gets, you know, published publicly uh, for everyone to read that contains a bunch of information, financial information, market information, risk to the business uh, about the company. One section is, you know, the company's estimation of the market size. And again, I'm, I'm definitely not going to quote these exactly right, but it's, it's directionally right. I want to say in their S1, they called out a TAM, a total addressable market of about $30 billion in software. But then they had like a couple sentences later that said, in addition to the core $30 billion TAM that we're addressing today... There's also a $300 billion services market that isn't software, that it's you know, consultants are brought in to build custom integrations and custom workflows um, right? that are, are an alternative to what we're doing. And you know, when we expect a certain percentage of that services market to translate to software you know, over the next decade, some, something like that. I think that dynamic is prevalent in tons of markets where you have a core software market of X, And then a services market that does the same thing. That's, you know, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, 10 X as big. What I get so excited about AI and the current implementation and where I think kind of large language models are going today is I think we'll totally see that services market eaten by software, which to me is super exciting because I think it's a force multiplier on the overall size of these software markets. Uh, which again, I think is is super exciting. We're seeing copilots for everything, right? Obviously, the big example there is GitHub uh, or other kind of coding tools that, you know, provide developers with a copilot to help write and augment code for them. I think we're gonna see co-pilots in a lot of different industries, whether it's healthcare or legal or right or other software industries. Uh, so I get super excited. I think you know the, the thing that we're thinking about from kind of the investment landscape is okay, where are the moats? And, you know, what layers of this AI stack will ultimately capture the most value? It's a really tricky question to answer because it feels like daily, you know, if not certainly weekly, the landscape's evolving, OpenAI releases a new thing. You know, I think it's a lot of people are drawing, drawing parallels to OpenAI, to AWS, where I, I remember going to kind of the AWS reInvent conferences many years ago and sitting in on the keynote, walking out of the keynote thinking, oh my gosh, like... These new features that AWS announced, like that's totally, that's like the nail in the coffin for startup XYZ. Uh, you know, obviously, what ended up happening was a lot of those markets were bigger than we thought. And we see a ton of huge standalone public companies, you know, or, or private companies built in markets that AWS has a competing offering. I think we'll see the same thing here with a lot of the solutions that, you know, like that OpenAI is releasing. Well, yes, that will be the one size fits all solution. But I think this market is just so big that we'll also see a lot of independent players, um, you know, be able to capture a lot of value and build big businesses. And so we're super excited about it. We, we definitely think this is the next platform shift akin to kind of cloud, mobile and Internet that preceded it. Um, so we're, we're, we're super jazzed up about it. We're, we're learning a ton, you know, that the space is evolving. feels like all I've been reading about this last week is it's kind of auto GPTs and baby AGI and, and all of these kind of agent based uh you know, AIs that are taking over the world and totally replacing a lot of human work. So it's, it's hard to keep up. It, it feels like half of my job is just reading right now and, and learning. Uh, but it's, it's a super exciting time, I think, to be in the tech ecosystem with all of these advancements happening.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, it's funny. We talked about all these numbers on today's show and it's, and that's obviously great, but it does feel like, I, I don't know. I, maybe it's just uh choosing to be optimistic, but uh, I think we had, you know, COVID and that had, you know, that was kind of a pessimistic time. And then we had crypto and I don't know, it turned out to be a little pessimistic, but like. The fact that we can all touch, you know, some version of uh, ChatGPT, chat GPT and, you know, kind of like you said, there's Copilot for everything. Like everyone yeah. can see it. Like I'm ready. I want Copilot pilot for every, literally every application I use. I want to write my Excel formulas yeah. for me. I want to tell me, edit my emails. I wanted to uh, help me be better at writing Slack message. I mean, it's just, it's limitless once you start using it. You're like, yeah, I want Copilot. So yeah. I'm with you on that. Um, now yeah. uh, for sure. someone looking to contact you, a couple things. I think you mentioned at the top, but let's, let's like, if you will give them a framework, it sounds like you're, interested in in investing in series B companies or, and then, um, what should a company look like? Just tell everybody like, what, what, what should I, as a, uh, entrepreneur, what should I have? Who should I be before I contact you Mm -hmm. and and I want you to invest in my company. Um, give us some tips. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Typically, um, typically I'm partnering with businesses once they have early signs of product market fit. Uh, and so generally it is, you know, once something has been built, and there are folks who are using it um, as opposed to it's more in the idea phase and it's people who are building product. You know, one, I think it's it, that more tightly couples with where I think I can add the most value and, and two, where I think I can just spot things earlier. Uh, so usually I'd say it's, it's kind of right when companies are approaching product market fit or, or, or kind of soon thereafter.
0: And what's the best way to reach you?
1: You know, my email is just first name at altimeter.com. It's, you know, any, anything's easy.
0: All right. Well, f- figure it out. So everyone, you know, with your next great idea, make sure to uh, pitch uh, jam in here. And uh, of course you need yeah. to tell everyone that software defined talk is the reason it all happened for you. Yes. Uh, all right. Well, thanks yeah. a lot for being on the show today. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no, this is fun. Maybe, maybe just maybe one final thought like on the AI point. I think the thing that gets me excited is when we look at the last few cycles, it's, you know, we had the internet bubble and, and kind of the, the recession in in that period of time in 2001, but that was preceded by this explosion in what happened in tech with the internet, right? Similarly in 2008, 2009, kind of shortly thereafter, it was mobile and cloud. It seems like the thing now is coming out of this down market, we have AI. And so it's, it's kind of been these weird three cycles where we've had this massive technology platform shift coming out of a down period that kind of catapults us into the next decade of, of innovation and excitement. So I, I think that, that that pattern is just one I've I found interesting. Uh which just gives me even more optimism for, for what's to come.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. That's a, that's a great place to leave it. Now, listen, I'm going to tell everyone else, uh, no AI needed for this. If you want a sticker, as everyone knows, all you have to do is send your postal address to stickers at software talk.com. I will have the specialized AI I've built, uh, you know, somehow uh, if you will address an envelope and send you as many stickers uh, as you want anywhere in the world. And with that, we will talk to you next time.